<laughs> Father, we come before you. We ask that you would just help us focus on you and your word today. We, we ask that as we just dig into this passage, that you would make your truth real to us, that you would lead us towards you and your grace and your love, and that you would shape us into the people that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, um, starting in verse 32. And we've been on this journey to prepare for Easter. And I just want to remind you of the passage, the the verses that we've kind of centered this mini-series around. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, where Paul writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And today, as we go through Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, we're going to be focusing on that participating in his sufferings. Suffering is something, as people, we're often quite uncomfortable with something we long to avoid and and get rid of in our life as soon as we can when it comes up. But if you look a little more closely, suffering is something that many people will embrace as long as they're doing it for something that they truly value or they truly believe in. For instance, uh, to go way back, I'm a Leafs fan, and to go back to any time when the Leafs were relevant, we've got to go back to the 60s. Uh, 1964, Bobby Bond. Legend. Legend in the Leafs. This is a picture of Bobby Bond being carted off the ice on a stretcher. See, he blocked a slap shot from Gordie Howe in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. The Red Wings were up on the Leafs three games to two. If the Leafs lost this game, it would have been over. They would have lost the Stanley Cup. Bobby Bond takes a shot from Gordie Howe in the third period of a tied game, tries to play a little longer, skating around, he hears a pop, and he just drops to the ground can't get up, can't move. They have to come on and stretcher him off the ice in what is the most important game of his career at that time. Third period's over, it's a tied game. And Bobby Bond, instead of getting x-rayed, asks them to freeze his ankle, tape it up so he can go back out. He goes out for overtime and he scores the game-winning goal for the Leafs to force game seven, which the Leafs go on to win four to nothing. It's, that's part of your history. All right. It's not, not part of mine, but that's okay. Um, but a great moment of somebody who was willing to go through suffering, go through pain, and that was why. For his chance to hug that trophy. For his chance to bring it home. And you can w- look at him there as he's smiling, basically leaning on the trophy because he can't stand But he went through that because it was something that he believed was important, something that he valued, and he was willing to go through that pain. Or even if you look at the world of dance, this is an article written about a a girl who was in the ballet class at what was then Ryerson University, and this is what it says in a story about her. Pain from a previously dislocated shoulder turned sleeping into a chess game, and wrapping the beige tensor bandage around her right ankle has become a part of her morning routine. But as she shifts her weight around the springboard floor, the familiarity and adrenaline she's felt since she was 12 years old comes flooding in, preparing to launch into a routine 
She has done a thousand times before, the pain fades away. Somebody who was willing to go through pain for something that they loved. Or look at these words from Ignatius, one of the first Christian martyrs. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. Suffering is, is terrifying. It's something that most of the time we, we wish to get rid of in our lives, but with the right focus, with the right goal, people are willing to embrace suffering. And so as we read through this passage today, the question that we should be asking, the question that we hope to have the answer of by the end of, of this passage is how can we embrace suffering? Because as people who are broken, living in a broken world, suffering is part of our reality. There is no way around it. Suffering is part of what we will be going through. Maybe it's the result of our own actions. Maybe it's the result of somebody else's brokenness. Or maybe it's just because we live in a broken world that will bring us to suffering from time to time. But there's no question about it. All of us will go through trials and pain, difficulties. And the question we need to see is, how do we embrace that? And furthermore, how do we turn those circumstances into a place where we can glorify God? And that's what I hope to, to dig out as we go through this passage together here. And the first thing we're going to see is that if we want to embrace suffering, the first thing we need to do is we need to be comforted in the suffering of Christ. Starting in verse 32, what we see is this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And so here's Jesus walking with his followers, heading towards Jerusalem, heading up to the great city on the hill, where the temple is where sacrifices are made to atone for the sins of the people so that they can be made right with God, where all of the religious practices take place, the center of the world for the Israelites, where the presence of God is, where he can be worshipped and met with, and when, where their relationships could be redeemed. And as they're going towards Jerusalem... They're approaching the Passover time. And all of the expectations that come along with Passover are on everyone's minds. You see, the disciples had already started thinking through that Jesus is the Messiah. And as Passover is coming, all of the Jewish people are thinking about the great time in their history where God redeemed them from an oppressive nation where God redeemed them from an evil ruler. And every year at Passover, the Jewish people are expecting God to do it again as they're sitting under the oppression of Rome. And so Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, but it's important for us to know, as David E. Garland points out, that Jesus goes to Jerusalem not to triumph in a military campaign, but to die. He's not going to conquer Rome. He's going to give himself up as the sacrifice that will bring all of God's people into relationship with him again. Everybody who's walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem is expecting his power and his might to be displayed in battle. 
And he's going to lay his life down. And the people who are walking with him are amazed at the the miracles he's been doing and the teaching that he's given as he's been showing them who will be in heaven with them. In in this moment, they had just had the the encounter with, with the rich young man. And Jesus telling them that it's, it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they're shocked at all of these things that Jesus is saying. They're afraid at the teaching that he's giving, showing them the greatness of God, showing them how holy God is, revealing his power through his actions. And they're amazed and they're afraid and they're anticipating Jesus to do something incredible as they head to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Not knowing that Jesus is going to do something incredible by becoming the Passover lamb for them. As we continue to read, we see this. Jesus says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples that he's going to die. But this is the first time where he gives all of the other details. This is the first time he lays out how much suffering he is going to go through. That he's going to be condemned to death. That he's going to be abandoned by his own people. That he's going to face loneliness. That he's going to be mocked and spat on and flogged. He lays out all of the suffering that he's going to go through. Suffering that nobody can imagine. He's going to go to the cross and face total silence from his father for the first time in all of his existence, in all of the existence of creation, all of the world. Jesus has been with God through all of eternity. Through Christ, all things were made. They've existed together in relationship for all of eternity. And on the cross, for the first time, when he cries out to his father, in all of eternity, the father will say nothing back to him. He will take that separation from God that we deserve onto himself. He will suffer more than we can ever imagine. He will take all the chaos, all the sin, all the brokenness of this world onto himself. That is why he is going to Jerusalem. See, as they are anticipating the Passover, and and as we're celebrating Palm Sunday today and we talk about Hosanna being shouted as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's important to note this, as Timothy Keller states, yes, God is king, but is a king who came to earth and went not to a throne but to a cross. Yes, God is glorious, but there is no greater glory than this, that he laid his glory and power aside and became weak and mortal. As we look to see how we can embrace suffering, how we can go through suffering and use it to glorify God, the first thing we need to do is take comfort in the suffering of Christ. We need to be comforted by his suffering. We don't worship a God who is just with us in our suffering. We worship a God who came down and suffered in our place. When we sing praises to Jesus about all that he's done for us, we're praising the God who came down and suffered 
for us so that we could live. When we bring our suffering to God, we know that he understands us. We know that he's with us. We know that he comforts us because he has suffered greater than we could ever imagine. He took all of our suffering, all of our brokenness, all of the mess of this world and all of the people who've ever lived onto himself so that our suffering would be short and momentary. We take comfort in the suffering of our Christ. But the second thing we need to do is we need to allow suffering to turn our eyes to eternity. See, as they're walking by and, and Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to go to the cross, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine following Jesus for years, knowing that he's the Messiah, seeing everything that he's done, and then walking up to Jesus and saying, hey, we want a favor from you, and you're not allowed to say no. Imagine the audacity of these two. But how often is that how we approach God in our prayer? How often do we actually take that same mindset and say to God, listen, I have something I need you to do for me, and I'm not really willing to accept no as an answer. How often do we spiral into more suffering and doubt because we don't get the answer we're looking for in our prayers? You see, often when we approach God, we're coming from the wrong perspective. He is God. We are his people. He knows what's best. We do not. We need to understand, just as James and John should have understood, that when you come to the Messiah, you're coming to the one who loves greater than you could ever love, knows more than you could ever know, and has better plans than you could ever plan. When we come to God in prayer, we need to come to worship and praise our Lord. And yes, we bring our requests to God, but we hold them out with an open hand, knowing, hey, this is what I would love, God. This is what I want to see you do, and I hope it's aligned with your will. And if it is, would you do that? But we do not come to God with, you have to do this for me. James and John learned that lesson this day, and, and we will too. But they come to him, and whatever we ask, we want you to do. And, and Jesus, being the gracious Messiah that he is, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And this is their ask. They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They asked to have the right and left hand seats when Jesus is on the throne. You see, they're so focused on their earthly situation, they're not even thinking about eternity here. They're so focused on their life right now and how they, as Jewish men living in Galilee, have been oppressed for so long that they don't want to be oppressed anymore. They want to have the power. When Jesus takes his throne, they want to sit on his right and his left so that they can be the number two and number three. They approach Jesus in a what-can-you-do-for-me-right-now kind of mindset. 
We want our life to be better right now. You see, William L. Lane, in his commentary, he says this, The brothers regard Jesus as the eschatological Lord who goes to Jerusalem to restore the glory of the fallen throne of David. And as they're expecting him to go and and redeem David's throne, they want that power. They want that glory. They believe because of their relationship with Christ that they're owed by him a better life and a better existence. And this is what Jesus says to them. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? That for us might be confusing. So it's important for us to go in and get a little context here. Timothy Keller points out in Hebrew scriptures, cup is almost always a metaphor for the just judgment of God against evil. So, when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from, he's not asking if they're able to drink from the same cup as him. He's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to pay for all of the evil that humanity has ever done. When, in the Old Testament, when you read about the cup, it's the cup of the wrath of God where all of the rebellion against God will be answered with his wrath and his punishment. And Jesus is saying to James and John, that's my moment of glory. I'm going to go drink that cup. I'm going to go take the wrath of God onto myself so that you don't have to take it. I'm going to go pay for your sins so that you don't have to pay it. I'm going to go and be punished for your rebellion against God, even though I've done nothing wrong, so that you can be set free. And the baptism, David E. Garland says this, what's important to note there is Jesus will not be sprinkled with a bit of suffering. He will be submerged in it. He will take on all of the wrath for the history of the world. James and John asked to to be at his right and left at the moment of glory. And the only other time in the Gospel of Mark where it talks about somebody being on the right and the left of Jesus is on the cross. See, Jesus' moment of glory is his crucifixion where he takes on all the suffering, all of the guilt of humanity, so that those who believe in him would be set free, so that those who trust in him as, his, as their Lord and Savior would be able to enter into a relationship with God for all of eternity. That is his moment of glory. And what Jesus says to, to James and John is, there's already people who are going to be on my right and left. One of them is going to turn their life to Jesus and spend the rest of eternity with him. But when he says, you're asking for this moment of glory, I'm not going to a throne, I'm going to a cross. I'm going through pain that you can never imagine. I'm going to pour out my spirit in ways that you would never be able to survive. I'm going to die so that you can live. I'm going to the cross, and I will rise again three days later. And when I do... I will have defeated sin and death and Satan. That is my moment of glory. 
And in saying this, they answer him, to go back a couple slides, back to the passage, uh, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism which, which, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. There are already people who will be on my right and my left in that moment of glory, and you are asking for things that you do not understand. We'll come back to this in a second, but I want to look at the rest of the, the disciples here. So we often look at this passage and we notice how brash James and John can be, but notice the other ten as well as we go to verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, the other ten aren't any better. They're all thinking through this life. What can Jesus do for me right now? How can my life be better in this moment? And I think we often approach Jesus in the very same way. Jesus, what can you do for me right now? I have all of these problems, all of these things that I want dealt with right now, and I want you to deal with them. And sometimes we come to church and we come to Jesus and we expect him to make our relationships better and our life better and, and make our suffering go away and, and help us out at work and give us some sense of, of feeling great. But I want you to notice that in this conversation, Jesus says to the disciples, to James and John specifically, you will drink from this cup and you will be baptized with this baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. They're not going to take on the full wrath of God, but they're going to suffer. Both of these men will suffer. They will be persecuted for their faith in Christ. One of them will be killed. The other one will be exiled for the rest of his life. They will suffer. And what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples here in this moment is you need to allow your suffering to take your gaze off of this life that you're living in. Take your, your focus off of this moment and turn it to eternity. Because through your suffering, you are going to make a huge difference in people's lives. Through your suffering and your pain, through your faith and all that you live through, people are going to hear my name proclaimed louder than they could have ever hoped for. They're going to see my love that I have for them as you suffer the way that I suffered for them. They will know who I am and the love that I have for them. Your suffering is not something you should ask to be rid of. It's something you should embrace as you proclaim the gospel to people through your suffering so that they may know me better. He says to them, this life is not about getting power. It's not about feeling great. No, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's calling them to follow him in his sacrifice and his service for people. He's saying, use your suffering so that other people may know me. 
and take your eyes off of this world and look to heaven. You see, there are two amazing things that happen when we embrace our suffering. The first is that other people will find hope in our suffering. As they go through similar trials, similar situations, they will see hope as we walk through that suffering and and keep our eyes focused on Christ and praise him in the midst of our pain, other people will see it is possible to love Jesus and to know him in our struggles. As we repent from from the, the, the situations that bring suffering into our life and turn our lives around and follow Christ, people will see that it's possible to turn and follow Christ in obedience. When we love people in our suffering, people will know that we do it because of a God who suffered and loved us first. When we embrace our suffering, other lives will change as well as our own. And so part of the question we need to ask here is, when is the last time we've suffered so somebody else might know the the gospel a little more clearly? Not just when's the last time I've served or given some of my time, but when have I actually suffered? When when has it cost me something? When When have I put some of myself on the line so that somebody else might know Christ a little more deeply? That is the call that Jesus was giving to his followers then, and it's the same call that we have now. Embrace our suffering and show people the love of God who suffered for us. But the other amazing thing that happens as we begin to turn our eyes to heaven is that suffering gives us a hope and a desire for heaven that we wouldn't otherwise have. In the moments of seeing our pain and the brokenness in our lives, and seeing the suffering that comes as we've turned to places other than God for our satisfaction and our pleasure, when we see the brokenness in the lives of the people around us, rather than just wishing it to go away, we are to desire heaven that much more. We are to long for paradise that much more deeply. To know that there is coming a time when Christ will return and put an end to our suffering and we will be with him and the Father for all of eternity in the world that God created for us and redeemed for us. We will understand the beauty of it all the more because of the suffering that we've gone through here. We are called to embrace the suffering that we have here as we turn our eyes to eternity to know the beauty of God that much more clearly and to show that to those around us. Rather than trying to get out of all of the situations that we're in, rather than coming to God and expecting him to make this life now better, we are called to serve, to be a slave, and to suffer through whatever situation we're in. And we can ask God to bring relief to that, but as we're suffering, we never stop praising God, we never stop worshiping Him, we never stop proclaiming the gospel. Because we have eternity waiting for us. And that is where our hope comes from. That is what our focus must be. And finally, how do we embrace suffering in this life? The last thing I want us to see here, just this last verse, it is through the suffering of Christ that we are redeemed. It is only through the suffering of Christ that we are redeemed. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. David E. Garland points out in his commentary, he says, Jesus has told his disciples that he must die, but this is the only passage in Mark that tells us why he must die. He gives his life as a ransom for many. We need to understand that we are broken people. And in our sin and in our brokenness, we have been separated from God. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to live life the way God created us to live. We are held captive by our own selfish desires. We have rebelled against God and removed ourselves from his presence. And Jesus on his throne for all of eternity, comes down so that he can give his perfect life as a ransom in exchange for our sinful, broken lives. He came down to suffer, to set us free. He came down to die so that we could live. Suffering is hard. It is difficult. It's uncomfortable. But as we look at this biblically, suffering is the greatest gift that we've been given by our Savior. His and ours. And so as we come around to the end here today, the question comes up again, how can we embrace suffering? And I think Paul the Apostle Paul sums it up quite nicely in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How do we embrace suffering we take comfort in the suffering that Christ has done for us. We turn our eyes to eternity and the love that God has for us. And we understand that it's through suffering that Christ has redeemed us and brought us back into relationship with our Father. It's important to note that as we go through this, um, Matthew McCullough says this, which is very important to us. Matthew McCullough has a book, uh, and in that book he writes this. Paul is not saying that the problems we face in this life aren't real. He's not even saying that they shouldn't weigh heavy on us or be hard to push through. Paul does not minimize our suffering. Instead, he maximizes glory. See, as we figure out how do we embrace our suffering, it's not about pretending that these things don't matter. It's not about pretending that the trials that we go through are small and insignificant. They hurt. They are painful. Going through suffering is one of the most devastating things that we will go through as people. As we go through loss and betrayal, as we go through being overlooked, as we go through being picked on, passed over, as we go through persecution in, in some form, as we go through trials and tribulations and suffering, those things matter and they hurt and they're painful. 
And we're not to ignore that. We're not to pretend anything otherwise. But we are supposed to understand that God's glory and the glory that we're being called to is so much greater than the pain and the suffering that we go through now that even our pain and our suffering can be used to increase that glory and the work that we're doing. So what does it look like to embrace our suffering? There's an incredible movie. It's the the story of three friends (laughs) who go on a long, difficult journey. And any movie that has Michael J. Fox and Sally Fields in it is worth watching. But three heroes who go on this incredible journey to go back home. And they go through tons of trials, tons of difficulties. They go through wilderness and going through this rough uh, terrain. They go through water, nearly drowning. They face porcupines, going through the pain that comes with that. I know, I went through this and I was like, how many animals really did we use in this movie? Anyway, um, I didn't make it, so you can't be mad at me. They face mountain lions and bears. And they even fall into literal pits of mud and struggle to get out, facing injuries, feeling like they have to give up and can't go on. And everything they go through, they consider worth it because in the end, they make it home to their master and their friend and feel his embrace as he welcomes them in. Every single thing that they went through is worth it because they made it home. Because they made it to the one who loves them and cares for them. Everything they did was part of their journey to get back to where they were meant to be. And we need to have those same eyes. We need to have those same understandings when it comes to suffering and the life that we're walking through. Cameron Cole writes these words. He says, So often we think in our worst that if our circumstances were different, then we would be content. If this tragedy or difficulty were not in my life, then I would be satisfied. In reality, whether you face tragedy or not, nothing will be enough until that day when you see Christ face to face and live as one with him for eternity. You were made for paradise and will not be satisfied until you experience it. Jesus guarantees this euphoric day awaits us. How do we embrace suffering? We know that as we suffer, we're going home. We're going home to a a place that's better than we can ever imagine better than any picture has ever been painted for us of where we're going. We're going to be with our Savior who suffered for us. We're going to be with our Savior who gave up his perfect peace to come down and take our chaos so that we can be given his place and be with our God and our Father, our Master and our friend forever. We suffer because Christ suffered for us. We suffer because in our suffering, we can bring other people home with us. We suffer because our home 
is so much better than the worst that we can go through in this life. We suffer because in his suffering, Christ gave us life. And so in our suffering, we see our need. We see our need for a Savior. We see our need for something better. We see the brokenness in this world, and we long for the perfection of the world that we're being saved into. And in Christ's suffering, we are brought home. I'm going to invite the band to come up now, and we're going to spend the next few minutes in reflection, in prayer. And I want each of us to reflect on this passage and, and what we've talked about here today. I want each of us to reflect on home. I want us to bring our suffering to God. I want us to thank him for sending his son to suffer so that we might live. I want us to spend time in prayer thanking God that we are being brought home to heaven for eternity with our God and our Creator, with our Savior who loves us, who died for us, who's pleading for us to come and embrace Him. And I want us to ask God, as we bring our suffering to Him, we can ask Him to lighten our load, but more importantly, can we ask Him to give us strength to suffer well, so that those around us may know Him more clearly, and as we suffer, for him to increase our desire and our heart to be with him for all of eternity. So would you pray those things now? Would you bring your suffering to God? Thank him for what he's done. Ask him to increase your desire for him, to focus your eyes on eternity, and that he would use our suffering to change our lives and the lives of those around us. And then I'll come up and close in prayer.